This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by SafeStart. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Thank you so much for being with us today for what I'm sure is going to be a very interesting conversation about safety culture. Joining me for that discussion, I'm happy to welcome Pandora Bryce and Peter Petroni of SafeStart. Pandora is Vice President of Product Development, and Peter is Senior Consultant. Pandora, Peter, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Excited to get started. Now, Safety culture is a topic, you know, that generates, you know, uh, a lot of conversation among among safety professionals and those in the safety community. So, Peter, I thought we could start by, you know, talking about what makes safety culture, you know, such a challenging issue to grapple with. Yeah, that's a great question and a great place to start, Scott. And, you know, what I've learned throughout my my career is that whenever we're dealing with people related issues, you know, including safety culture, you know, it's really becomes complex really quickly. You know, the really uh, a lot of issues that are hard to get our arms around, hard to get our brains around. And with culture, it forms over a long period of time. And it's very deeply ingrained in an organization's DNA, very difficult to influence or, or change. Uh, shifting cultures can be difficult for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, some people ask us, you know, where do we start with this? You know, it's a long journey. It's a it's a complex task. So where do we even start is one of the things that I've I've had uh, some of our partners ask me, um, you know, what does good look like? Well, you know, what are we trying to accomplish with this safety climate or, or culture transformation uh, is another question that we hear a lot. Another thing that uh, that comes into play is that people are resistant to change. And whenever we're trying to influence a culture or, you know, a shift in the way we do things in an organization, there's a, you know, a bunch of people that are going to resist it. And we have to kind of, uh, you know, address that challenge as well. And, you know, the other thing, uh, last thing I'd say, Scott, is that as, uh, as people, we tend to gravitate towards things that we're comfortable with, right? And dealing with culture, dealing with people, sometimes it's, uh, you know, gets us out of our comfort zone. And, you know, that includes leaders and safety leaders as well. So, you know, those are just some of the things that are some of the challenges that we have to think about when we embark on a on a cultural transformation, if you will. Sure. Something you mentioned there, Peter, is safety climate. I'm, I'm curious to learn more about that. And uh, Pandora, you know, we, we talk a lot about safety culture, but, you know, when we're talking about climate, what makes that so often, you know, overlooked for safety culture? Yeah, I think that's a great question, because first of all, those two terms, climate and culture, or safety climate, safety culture, they're often used interchangeably out in the real world, you know, outside of more academic research settings. And so sometimes the distinction isn't even on business leaders' radar. You know, so we've been working on describing the difference between those two. And so, you know, as we see it, culture is how things happen around here. It, it can be characterized as it's like the personality of an organization. And it's a complex mixture of facets that are interconnected. And one of them is safety, but culture overall is a bigger thing than just safety. So we tend to not just talk about safety culture because safety culture is a subset of the organizational culture. 
anyway, the you know those things include the value placed on safety, the extent to which people take personal responsibility for their safety and that of their coworkers, that my brother's keeper kind of sense. You can see that being more or less present in various organizations. But safety climate is is more like a snapshot of how we feel about safety right now. So it's like the the organization's current mood about safety. And that can change in an instant. If someone was badly hurt yesterday, the safety climate's going to be different. You know, it's 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 much more changeable. So safety climate isn't a new concept, but not a lot of organizations are using climate factors purposefully to bring about change. There's been a lot of information and work on cultural transformation, kind of big picture cultural transformation. And as Pete said, it's kind of difficult. (laughs) And so what we found that if you can influence safety climate, you know, team by team, department by department, then you're creating a sustainable method for shifting the culture overall, over time. Staying on that topic, you know, you know, safety climate is, you know, more, more in the moment. And as you noted, Peter, you know, safety culture is more long-term. So, you know, what's, what's the timeline, you know, looking at taking changes in safety climate to start then shifting the culture? That's a very, very complex question, Scott. But, you know, let me start out by saying that, uh, you know, one bit of caution that I always, always put out there when we talk about uh, culture or climate change is that it's a never ending journey. You know, we really have to, you know, this is a long, long term endeavor. As Pandora pointed out, you know, climate can change instantly. And I think the key, what we really want to think about is consistency. When we're talking about influencing climate, consistency is, is very, very important. So having, you know, a consistent change in your safety climate, that's going to lead to an overall shift in your culture as well. So, you know, with that said, it can change instantly. One good example that we talk about a lot is uh, no blame mindset. That's one of the safety climate success factors that we talk about. So if you have a, a climate where, you know, people are open and, and they're not afraid of getting blamed for for making an error, you know, that's going to increase things like near misreporting. It's going to open up that, you know, two-way dialogue and we're going to get more and better information about the hazards and risks that are around us. And, you know, we know that organizations with that strong near misreporting culture, they're going to identify and resolve those issues, you know, before somebody's injured. So, you know, with the climate ever-changing, uh, as I mentioned, I think the key is to be consistent with things like the no blame climate that that fosters engagement and fosters those two-way dialogues. As we've been talking about, you know, there's so many different factors that, you know, can impact a workplace safety culture. And Pandora, I'm curious, you know, the, the role that leadership skills play in influencing, you know, both the climate and the culture of an organization. I, that's a that's a great question. And if you look at any of the, you know, organizational development research and, you know, even outside of safety research and so on, there is a big influence that comes from leadership and especially communication and alignment between leadership, you know, towards a particular goal. And, you know, leaders can make a big impact, a big positive impact on all aspects of performance. It does require the communication skills to build trust and engage their teams and also 
that leaders need to listen enough to get important information from the people at the pointy end of the stick, you know, the, the line workers, and actually listen to it and make change that will make the safety and conditions for workers better. And so it's it's that whole, it's a cycle of communication. And when when you start getting those things happen on a micro scale, on a smaller scale, that sort of safety climate scale, the local scale, then it can start to influence the culture overall. But really the leadership has to be aligned on that. And the other thing about deliberately developing leadership skills is that you get consistency throughout your leadership. I, I'm sure you know most people listening to this will have had a bad manager at some point <laughs> in their lives and they know what poor leadership does to a team. Uh, and so when you can get a consistent approach to leadership and that communication is great and consistent throughout, it just feels like people are rowing in the same direction and it's a much more positive thing. The, the other thing is that people will form an opinion, people at all levels will form an opinion about some kind of change initiative based on a whole variety of types of communication. And one of the big parts that we really focus on is informal conversations that take place on the shop floor. You know, a communication from a you know, higher level is all very well if it comes on paper or is broadcast, you know, in whatever common way. But really, it's you know, wandering out onto the shop floor and chatting about it and why we're doing it and what the benefits are and what's in it for you, that can really influence positive change. And it also heads off inaccurate information. You know, it's so easy to mishear or interpret a, a written piece of information. Even a, an email can be read in a way that has a a nasty tone or a happy tone, and it's nothing to do with the words. It's how the person hears it in their head. And so actually getting out there and communicating effectively is super, super important. Absolutely. And and on that note, you know, the, there are so many elements that go into an effective safety and health management system. And, you know, a lot of safety is about regulations and working conditions. But to your point at the, at the top, Peter, this is about people also and you know how they're how they're interacting with each other so how does this discussion about culture and leadership skills you know fit in with you know the more traditional safety framework that's an excellent uh, excellent uh, direction to go in scott and you know we know that most organizations have have good rules that's kind of the basis you know our procedures you know policies the the way we do things is very well understood yet we also know that people don't always follow the rules Right. And I think the kind of traditional approach to that or view of that is that, you know, let's retrain the person or maybe let's uh, let's re rewrite the procedure if, if it's not correct. But I think, a, you know, a healthier way that we've been thinking about this lately is looking at those types of things through the lens of uh, what we call the human factors framework. And, and real simply, what that is, is uh, understanding of some of the systems that reside in our organization, the technical systems like our equipment. And, and the way our buildings are set up, those types of things, but also the people systems that reside in the organization, like our teams and how we develop leaders and those types of things. And we kind of use that as a, a model to look at these safety climate success factors. And, you know, one of the things that we look at is that, you know, if somebody isn't following the rules, you know, we can influence that as leaders, right? If we really understand 
why they're not, uh, you know, doing what what it is that we expect them to do, whether they're taking shortcuts or deviations from known procedures. It's rarely because the person wants to get hurt or produce a subpar product or something else going on. So the role leader plays is, you know, being aware, understanding the, the human elements that go into the technical systems, how they're affecting the decisions and actions that people made. And then developing their interpersonal skills so that they can intervene accordingly, you know, influence the people, understand, and then feed that information back into the organizational learning loop so that we can, you know, really become a learning organization. And and I think that's just, you know, a primary responsibility, if you will, of of all leaders. Definitely. Why don't we get talk a little bit more about that that connection you were just talking about between, you know, safety climate and those human factors. So, you know, as I mentioned, we have the the human factors framework. If we're looking at how to improve uh, organizational outcome, which is really, you know, that's why organizations are put together, produce a product, produce a service. And in order to do that, we have to have people doing that. And as we mentioned before, once people get involved, things start to get complex. So, you know, to have that, that framework in place to be able to discuss and be able to derive consistent, effective actions to you know, to, to drive those outcomes, I think is is really, really important. And leaders that understand that connection between the organization and the individuals, I found, tend to be uh, successful, you know. And, and it might be obvious that, uh, you know, human factors affect many aspects of the organization, uh, many aspects of the, you know, what the workers do. You know, it can be useful to think about the technical systems and, and the people systems separately sometimes. You know, the, an example that we could we could talk about, Scott, is that, you know, most most businesses have, I think uh, Pandora calls it Brothers Keeper, others call it Stop Work Authority, but that concept is alive and well. If you see something that's unsafe, you know, you not just have a right, but you have an obligation to kind of step in. Everybody understands that. It kind of starts out in that organizational learning loop, if you will. But we also know that people don't always exercise their stop work authority. Almost every time that I'm on a site, I see a situation and somebody will say, well, hey, you know, that that person's not really doing that the right way. And I'll say, well, why didn't you intervene with the person, right? So from a leadership standpoint, important to understand, you know, why, number one, the person may not have used their stop work authority. And it's not rarely, if ever, because they want somebody to get hurt. There's something else going on. And understanding those human factors of, you know, maybe they don't have the technical, you know, maybe they're uh, afraid of what the reaction of the person might be, whatever that is, kind of a leader's, uh, a leader's obligation to understand that and coach that person in that way. And then when we see people not using it, you know, including ourselves, it's kind of important to dig in and, and find out why, why that's happening. That's a, you know, important uh to do, if you will, uh, for leaders when they're out on the shop floor and and making these observations. You know, another example is uh, people taking shortcuts, like we said before, right? Highly unlikely that it was a deliberate unsafe act. It's more likely that the work environment uh, makes that work around acceptable. You know, they've either seen somebody else do it before or they've done it themselves before and haven't gotten hurt. So it kind of becomes the normal way of doing things, right? And those types of things can increase risk. But again, it's a leader's responsibility to kind of look out for those things and, and understand and, and coach appropriately and, and accordingly so that people know what the right thing is to do. And then again, as, as leaders, we don't want to inadvertently kind of send that message out there 
that, you know, throughout the month, it's okay to do things the right way. But if we have a production quota, we're meeting at the end of the month, you still want to do it the right way, right? You don't want to send those inadvertent messages that, you know, it's okay because we got to meet our production quota, for example. Staying on that topic of leadership skills and uh, Pandora, we touched on this a little bit earlier, leadership skills that have an impact on safety climate. What's the best way to help frontline workers, you know, develop those leadership skills? So as you know, you know, they will, you know, intervene in those situations. If you see something, say something, how can they develop those skills? Yeah, that's a great question. And we've seen that it's it's a big gap, you know, and we hear from our clients that it it is a gap. And so, you know, I think part of that gap is that many organizations don't really have a deliberate process for developing, in particular, line leaders, you know, that at that level. It's common that people are promoted from within, which of course is great because they know the job, but they move a, a highly capable worker into a team lead role and then don't give them any training or structure for developing the kind of people skills they might need, the, the leadership skills of communicating between above and the, the line and you know being much more of a, a bridge and a connector of useful information that will keep everybody safer. And, you know, sometimes those are called soft skills. This is not my favorite term. They're not the least bit soft and they are definable and they're learnable. And so I think that in terms of your question, the best way to teach that is to really break it down into small individual skills and help people practice and learn those things like having a difficult conversation. Most of us don't particularly like, uh, you know, difficult conversations. We may avoid them or try and get them over with or, you know, and we'll, we might uh, take different approaches. Some of us might just blast a person and others might sort of hum and ha and edge around the conversation. But there are some excellent ways to learn how to do that. But it does take ongoing practice. And it's really helpful to have good role models, mentors. And so it means that the leadership as a whole needs to be modeling you know, those good leadership skills because some of us have never had a leader who communicates really effectively and you know, welcomes bad news, for example. Like, don't tell me about the near miss. I don't want to know. <laughs> it's, it's really... Uh, so training is a start, but the real progress happens out on the shop floor, you know, with action plans, mentorship, manager engagement. It's not a simple, you don't just, you know, kind of send someone to a little training course and voila, the magic happens. It takes more than that. And and I would imagine eventually that, you know, the two would really go hand in hand when you have a climate and a culture where people feel empowered to be leaders and, and speak up and do those things, you know, that that'll just kind of come naturally when you have a climate and a culture that, you know, fosters that. Yeah, absolutely. If you're punished for being a, you know, someone who says what's really going on, then that is not a healthy safety climate. And as you make a shift towards welcoming that kind of information and actually doing something about it, then absolutely the local climates and the culture all thrive towards getting those better outcomes. Peter, something you you mentioned uh, at the beginning was, you know, going out and talking with folks and they're not sure where to begin. 
you start talking about climate and culture and, you know, they're, they're not sure, you know, where to start in order to take their organization where they want to go. So, you know, if safety professionals out there know they need to do some work on improving their, their safety climate, where should they start? How do you start that conversation? You know, I think the the short answer to that, and and this is my short answer to almost everything that that I start to try to work on, uh, Scott, is to you know learn more about it, learn learn the you know the theory behind it, if you will, uh, about safety climate, and the recent white paper that uh, Pandora and I uh, you know I had the privilege of working on with Pandora that'll give you a good overview. We've broken the safety climate down into some you know, six elements. Uh, some of them are technical. Some of them are involving uh, interpersonal skills, leadership skills. But I think that would be a good place to start. And in that white paper, you know, there's also a lot of great citations uh, to other research. So if folks like to read. I think that would be a good, you know, really good place to start. And then, you know, another option that that I'm always uh, an advocate for, you know, both when I worked in, in industry and and as a consultant, is to you know reach out for some uh, outside expertise. You know, no no organization has all the in-house expertise they need to be successful. So you know, if uh, if people have an appetite for it, an organization has an appetite for it, I would say to reach out to an expert and have them identify the climate success factors that are going to be most applicable to them, and then you know learn about them from an academic standpoint. And then the important part is to figure out how to make it practical and you know doable, if you will, on, on a day-to-day basis. Right. What skills do we need to improve with our leaders? What programs do we need to maybe tweak a little bit? What skills we need? Those types of things. So that's the approach I would take. All right. Anything else uh, either of you would like to add about safety, climate, and culture? Any any final thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with? I might add one thing, Scott, and it really goes to the you know this whole idea of changing culture or influencing culture and, and influencing climate. And you know, from my personal experience. You know, it's easy for organizations to, you know, kind of focus on the senior leadership and also what, you know, what I think Pandora turned at the pointy end of the stick, right, where people are getting hurt, where they're making the decisions out in the field. But one of the things that I found that that's, uh, you know, very important and can have a, a huge impact on any type of initiative involving change or influence like this, and it's the frontline leaders and, and uh, you know, Pandora mentioned it before, but I, I cannot overemphasize how important and how much traction I've gained with, with clients and in my organizations I've worked with. Once we started focusing on those frontline leaders, getting them the technical and interpersonal skills that they need to be successful, to be good leaders, that's something that could really you know, give you that exponential increase in your performance and in your safety programs is to help those frontline leaders be successful. Pandora, any final thoughts? I think Pete summarized it pretty well, actually. I I think my impulse on some of these questions was to answer the academic way, which is, well, it depends. (laughs) In the academic world, we're we're trained to focus on the head of a pin and, and, you know, not to come to conclusions based on somebody else's (laughs) work. So... Um, but absolutely in our in a, our field work, and that's where you know Pete has been so uh, instrumental in this work is finding real life examples and putting this to work in the real world, out on the shop floor. Yeah, that's 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 what it's all about. 
Thank you both so much again for coming on. Is it that this is a big topic that's important for employers and safety professionals to, to take the time to, you know, develop that good safety climate, safety culture so that people feel empowered to speak up and making sure that everybody gets home safe. So thank you both so much again. Thank you, Scott. Been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Scott. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org. We'll see you next time.